if you are a visitor, we want you to know uh, we count it a privilege to, to worship with you guys. And if you have a church home and you're just here with friends, we, we count it a, a huge privilege. If you don't have a church home, we want to encourage you to find one. And um, if you're looking for one, we want you to fill this out. This is just a little card that gives us some information that we can get you information you need to make an informed decision about finding a church home as well. There's a spot on the back for prayer requests. So if you're sitting there, visitor, member, whatever, um, and you have something you would like us to pray about, uh, put that on there, and, and we pray about it as a staff, and then on Wednesday mornings, the men will gather, and we'll lift up the prayer requests that have been uh, turned in. So um, appropriate, this morning we're going to be talking about the discipline of prayer. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and are so thankful to be here this morning, to have access to a God who is um, perfectly holy, compassionate, tender. Um, Lord, I pray that none of us would take that lightly. As we offer up worship and song, I pray that that this is a people where our, our hearts are not far from the things coming out of our mouths, but that we would do as your word says and guard our steps as we come near. Lord, specifically this morning, we want to pray for another local church. We pray for First Baptist Quinlan. We pray for Pastor Brad LaFavors. pray that um, he and his wife are walking closely with you and living together in an understanding way. I pray that they're enjoying you. I pray that you are using him to bless that uh, body of believers. And I pray that as a body, they are um, serving and loving their community well. I pray that their time this morning as they gather in a different location um, uh, from us, that, that you would allow their time to be full of the Spirit, full of truth, and encouraging, convicting um, that, that he is standing and delivering the word and that your people are worshiping and responding. Lord, we also pray, as you tell us to, uh, for our local uh, city government. We pray um, specifically this morning for a new city council. Pray for David Dryling, Jerry Ransom, James Evans, Jeff Daly, Holly Gocher, Brent Money, and Cedric Dean. Lord, I pray that this team would have an awareness of the fact that it, it was uh, your hand that has placed them where they are and that they would not take that for granted. I pray that that group, our city council, would uh, serve well that they would serve the people of this community well. Um, And even knowing that there are significant differences within the council, rather than dwelling on those differences, I pray that you would uh, allow them to have the wisdom to to maybe utilize those um, for fruitful conversation that results in uh, some, a a wisdom and insight and direction that's, that's really greater than the sum of its parts. Lord, I'm thankful um, for the things that, that you're aware of that we're not aware of. And I pray uh, for unity within that, that council. This morning as we talk about prayer, I pray that your word would go forth and that your people would respond appropriately. Please use me as you see fit and give me clarity of mind as I preach. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon on the spiritual discipline of solitude, which is being alone with God. And I presented solitude as one leg of a three-legged table, Y'all remember that three-legged table illustration for y'all, for those who were here. I presented solitude as the people of God spend their time in different areas. And what God says is to make sure that some of your time is with everyone else, corporate worship, gathering like this. The second leg is smaller groups of people. That's going to be life groups, LTGs, discipleship groups, accountability groups, maybe your neighborhood, your family. And then the third leg is solitude where you you have to spend time alone with God. And I presented it as a three-legged table because in our house we have a few of them. And what I've learned is that when one leg is off, they are precariously imbalanced. They're kind of in a state right there that is not great. And in fact, since I preached that sermon, giving that illustration, we had Mother's Day. We bought a bunch of flowers for for my beautiful bride. and, And we put them in these nice ceramic things and we put them on a three-legged table outside. And one of those legs was a little crooked. And that thing spilled, the ceramic broke, the plants fell. And I thought, what a great opportunity to teach my kids a lesson and an illustration on the importance of that balance. 
And uh, I threw the table across the yard, said we're never going to have a three-legged table anymore. <laughs> May have missed the opportunity there for that teachable moment. Uh, but the point is, is that that three-legged table, you can't, you can't shore up the shortness in one leg by making another one longer. They ju- there just has to be a balance there. So we can't make up for a lack of time in corporate worship with, with more devotional time and time in solitude. We can't make up a lack of time in solitude with just going to three life groups instead of one. There's balance that has to exist there, because if not, we're sort of precariously imbalanced in our movement. Today, we're going to look at the discipline of prayer. And it's a discipline. And before we dive in, I want to make a really important clarification. If you were a part of our Wednesday night study, where we've been going through the spiritual disciplines, in that study, we addressed prayer particularly in its, as it pertains to the, that third leg of solitude, our time alone with God. And, and that's, that was our main focus in that study. We looked at prayer from the perspective of only one leg of the table. This morning, we're going to consider the discipline of prayer in view of all three legs. We're just, it's a, on the general discipline of how we move as a body, whether we're all together, whether we're in our life groups, whether we're with our families, whether we're alone with God. Ephesians 6.18 indicates that believers are to be praying at all times. So this morning, our focus is going to be all three legs of that table, whether we're all together, whether we're in smaller groups, whether we're by ourselves. You can consider glue this morning. Ben and I were talking uh, yesterday, and he um, gave an illustration that I thought was appropriate. You can think of prayer as like the glue that holds that table together, the glue that holds all of this together that we're supposed to be doing at all times. So with that in mind, turn to 1 Peter 4.7. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 7 is our main home text for the morning. In this, a little background before I read that verse, Peter is writing a letter to those who are in the dispersion. And what he's doing is he's explaining um, to believers what, what it means for them to be in Christ. He's explaining what your marriage looks like for those who are in Christ. He's explaining how God's building up a a, a a big kingdom made of independent stones. He's talking about submission to authority he's, and how that works for those who are in Christ. He's talking about your marriage and how that works for those who are in Christ. And then we get to this chapter about being stewards of God's grace and how we're supposed to move. And so in 4, verse 7, it says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He's writing this to a people who need to understand the importance of prayer and everything that goes into it. I'm going to read it again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's a lot in this verse. So here's our roadmap for the morning. We're going to look at the middle of the verse. Then we're going to look at the beginning of the verse, and then we're going to look at the end of the verse. And we're going to look at one satellite or two, maybe, per, per view of each section. So let's look at the middle of the verse, where it says, Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. The first point this morning is that prayer is too important to approach haphazardly. Prayer is too important for the people of God whether we're together, whether we are by ourselves, we cannot approach it haphazardly. To approach something haphazardly indicates that you really have no plan. You're just sort of flying by the seat of your pants. Um, I, I was looking for a bunch of words that mean this. Slapshod. I have no, I've never used that word, but I want you to just write it down. Go look it up. It's this sort of haphazard, like, well, we're just going to approach it in a, in a way that, you know, we'll figure it out as we go. And when it comes to prayer, you, you don't approach it haphazardly like that. That's what Peter means when he says, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There's something that you are to be actively about so that your prayers accomplish what God intends for them to accomplish. This would be like if someone's preparing for, say, like a race. You'd say, eat a healthy breakfast and drink lots of water for the sake of your race. You're preparing for something. You're anticipating something. You're saying, be disciplined enough not to have like beer and pizza for breakfast on the day of the race. Be disciplined enough to know that something important is going to happen, and I need to take some steps leading up to it because I believe um, 
something that's going to happen there, and I, and I need to be ready for what I'm being called to do. That's what we're talking about here with prayer. This is similar to what Paul says in the previous chapter. You don't have to turn there, but he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers are not hindered. He's saying your, your prayer life is so important that in light of the importance of your prayer life, you need to consider, make sure you're living with your, your spouse in an understanding way so that your prayers aren't hindered. Some of us may need to ask the question, would we even know if our prayers were hindered? Would we, would we see hindered prayers if they existed in our lives? Biblically, the way that you think affects the way that you act. When we do things, sometimes we're like, oh man, I didn't mean to do that. But, but anything that you do, good or bad, was preceded by the way you thought about things, the way you were thinking about what was going on. So biblically, the way you think affects the way you act. Your behavior is affected by what you set your heart and your mind on. So I want to zero in on our thoughts for a moment. As it says, be, be self-controlled and sober-minded. I want to consider our thoughts and how they affect prayer because the reality for us is that the way you think will absolutely affect your prayers. So turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, you know that they were a bit of a mess. There was all kinds of different things going on that were out of order. And so Paul has written to them two letters that are helping them to put things in proper order. Because the reality is prayer is important. This sermon is very intentional. We take once or twice a year to just talk about prayer because we're to be a people of prayer. And so here Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And he says this in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So you see that, and as a Christian you should be saying, I would like to have divine power to destroy strongholds. Whatever the stronghold is against Christ, I would love that divine power. So we keep reading. We destroy arguments... And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. That is what it means to be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. What we're touching on here is something called Christian meditation which is very different from Eastern meditation. Did you know that it's good for you, whether we're together here, whether you're alone, whether you're in your life group, it's good for you to meditate before you pray? Don't just launch off into it? That's why sometimes at night when you're praying, not that anyone here might have experienced this, but I'll just throw it out there. When you're saying at the end of the day, you know, you just kind of, okay, it's the end of the day, I'm going to pray, and you find yourself waking up the next morning, not real sure when your prayer time that was so deep and profound ended and sleep began. Sometimes we need to spend time thinking about what we're going to pray before we pray it so that we're ready and we're not just throwing up empties to God, you're good, you're good, my kids need you, and I, I need sleep, and then you should go to sleep. We, we, we are, we're foolish in our prayers if we don't prepare and make sure we're not just lobbing up empty statements. So here it's saying to take our thoughts captive. Christian meditation, as opposed to Eastern meditation, is a filling of the mind. Rather than emptying our minds or just thinking about whatever naturally comes to mind, the Christian throughout all of life, not just prayer, in preparation for prayer, when you pray and after you pray, is to take their thoughts captive. We take our thoughts captive aiming to fill our minds with truth for the sake of our prayers. One way to think about this would be we're being called by Peter here, by Paul here, to exercise dominion over our thoughts. Do you know you have the ability to do that? Some of us are, are haunted by our thoughts. Some of us are plagued by, man, I just think this over and over. I think this is going to happen. I'm fear That's where fear comes in. You think about something over and over, and you're so fearful, you almost feel like it's a reality when it's not a reality. You need to know as a Christian, God gives you the ability to exercise dominion over your thoughts. And if you don't, your prayers are going to be weak. He gives you, when he says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
when he says set your mind on the things above, he's not a cruel God who's calling you to something that's impossible. He's a loving God who gives you the Holy Spirit to empower you to take your thoughts captive, to exercise dominion over your thoughts. And that sometimes means exercising dominion over the, what I'd call the inner straw man. Now we could read this verse here and say, all right, so we've got to have our thoughts ready. We've got to take a, exercise dominion over them with truth. And then it will have divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. I think maybe we could have a kind of a silly picture where a group of Christians are sitting around and here comes a non-believer and they're going to say something against God and then we have this power to just destroy their argument and just to destroy their lofty opinion. And that may be the case, but my thought on this is maybe those lofty opinions against God and that argumentation comes from inside of us. That's what it means to struggle with our thoughts. That's why we're called to take them captive. Sometimes we think things that aren't true, and so we have to work to exercise dominion. Sometimes we think things like, man, I'm never going to change. I've always struggled with that. People aren't going to change. That person's not going to change. Uh, it, what's the point in putting all this effort in? What's going to happen is going to happen. And we have these thoughts of futility, negativity, pessimism, and that's not appropriate for the Christian for the sake of our prayers. Taking every thought captive to obey could be stated being sober-minded so that I can be self-controlled. They work together, and in this passage, the aim is obedience. So there's something getting in the way of you obeying God if there's something getting in the way of you having right thoughts. I want to give an example. Um, what it means, because I've heard some people say, hey, I've heard you all talk about taking your thoughts captive. What in the world does that mean? As I'm preparing for this sermon, prayer. Oh, well, that's exciting. I get to stand in front of a room full of mainly Christians, but there's probably not a single person in this room who hasn't heard a lot about prayer or have their own thoughts about prayer and have the way that they pray. And so as I'm preparing for this sermon, I'm like, okay, we're going to go with prayer. And then just, just a few moments after that decision, it's like, oh, man, that's so lame. Let's talk about something like exciting. Everybody knows about prayer. And then as I'm preparing, I'm thinking, it doesn't matter how passionate I am about this sermon. It doesn't matter how, how well delivered it is or thorough it is. Man, people are going to pray how they pray. No one's going to pray more. No one's going to pray less. How, I mean, how can I expect any response from this sermon in regards to prayer. People know what prayer is, and they, they have their views. And then as I'm praying about it, I'm like, Lord, you know, help me to, to do well on this. But then these thoughts creep in as I'm praying, saying, man, what's the point putting in all the effort? People are going to do what people are going to do. I've learned that through the years. And is anyone really going to change? You may be alarmed to know that one of your pastors struggles in that manner when he's putting a sermon together. But rest assured, it happens all the time. That's why we're called to take our thoughts captive, to exercise dominion over our thoughts with truth. And so in those moments where I'm saying, what's the point? What, why are we going to put this effort in? I'm not going to change. They're not going to change. I didn't pray enough this week. I'm preaching on prayer, and I didn't pray enough this week in preparation to preach on prayer. A lot of alliteration in that prayer particularly. So what do I do? Well, I exercise dominion over those thoughts by replacing them with truths from God. I have to, I have to work to to beat up that inner straw man. I have to work to say, you know what? We have a promise that the word will not return void. We have a promise that it is good to be ready to preach. We have a promise that it's good to put this in front of the body. Not only that, we have the promise that after I preach, you go and think about what you've heard and God actually gives you understanding that you don't have in my delivery alone. And I have to replace these old thoughts with appropriate thoughts that are true. This is what it means to be sober-minded. Just think about what, it, what the opposite of sober is. The opposite of sober is intoxicated. So you've never heard anyone say, man, I got completely drunk and had just the sweetest corporate worship time. It doesn't happen that way. You don't hear someone say, I got stoned out of my mind and had just the most awesome devotional this morning with the Lord. It doesn't happen that way. You don't hear someone say, I went on a two-day binge, just taking in everything I could get my hands on, 
And I made some of the wisest decisions during that time. The reason it doesn't happen that way is because wisdom is all about truth. When you are intoxicated, you are not more in touch with reality. That's why you get dizzy. That's why you have depth perception issues. That's why you often make very regrettable, shameful decisions that you look back on. So what do you what do? You do? You're not more in touch with reality. To be intoxicated is to be out of touch with truth, with the way things are. So to be sober-minded, the opposite of that, is for your thoughts to be intoxicated with things that aren't true. It's the same as taking a huge hit off of something. When your thoughts are intoxicated with things that aren't true, you're just running the wrong direction. And before you know it, you're dizzy. You are, you are what's going on? I'm, I'm, I'm out of touch with reality. I'm having a hard time making wise decisions. I'm having a hard time understanding these dynamics because you are so out of touch with reality that you have run the wrong way with things that are not true. So to be sober-minded, you have to sober up with the truth. You will never be closer to Jesus in any other way. The way you get to being sober-minded in truth is with the truth. You replace the false thoughts with things that are true about God and it is beautiful because you find yourself closer to God in that process and your prayers do something they matter they mean something and you are in a communion with the living God who has made a way for you in Christ but you can't do that if you're not sober-minded I recently heard a lecture from a biblical counselor who said you'd be amazed at the number of people who come to him for counseling who need change in their lives. Something needs to change. They're struggling with a problem. And when he asks what they've done about it so far, the large majority of them say, well, I've prayed about it and nothing happened. And his response is, well, maybe that's the problem. All you've done is pray about it. He doesn't say that because he has a low view of prayer. He says it because he has a biblical view of prayer. What he means is, if there's no self-control... If there's no sober-mindedness, if there is no taking your thoughts captive with some intentionality to obey Jesus, of course your prayers are ineffectual. If you're not going through the things the Bible tells us to go through in preparation to pray and, in, and after we pray, then your prayers will undoubtedly be ineffectual. So the first thing we see this morning is that prayer is too important to approach haphazardly. You have to take your thoughts captive and exercise dominion over them with truth. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So our second point, we're going to move now to the beginning of the verse. It says, turn, go ahead and turn back to 1 Peter 4, 7 if you're not there. You notice that right before that call to be self-controlled and sober-minded, there's a therefore. And something that Howard Hendricks teaches us, which is really, really good in his book about how to study the Bible, is that anytime you see a therefore, you ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? Because what is going to be said is being connected to what has been said. And so in this verse, we're saying, okay, be self-controlled and sober-minded. There's a therefore in front of that. So it needs to be connected to what was said before that was stated. And so what that is in this verse is the end of all things is at hand. Prayer is important because of the time in which you live. The end of all things is at hand. This reality had a profound impact on Peter, the time in which he lived. The end of all things is at hand. Another way of explaining this is to say, and I want you to go with me on this, you might have to work, but it's worth it. Peter is saying in this statement, he's saying this, Never let your experiences be the lens by which you view the timeless truths of God. Be very aware of the time in which you live. That's bigger than your experience. Always let timeless truths be the, the lens. The timeless truths about God be the lens by which you view your experiences. So, so many people are, have a concern about being out of touch with the times. But what he's teaching us here is You'll never be out of touch with the times as long as you are never out of touch with the timeless. The timeless is what's important. It is a timeless truth of the the reality 
of the time in which we live right now. The end of all things is at hand. That is a timeless truth. It has been anticipated since the beginning, and it is what will be our reality until the end. This is what we call a timeless truth. So just consider for a moment, Peter is the guy saying this. The end of all things is at hand, so make sure your prayers are right. Make sure you approach your prayers in a right manner. But I just want to take a minute to do a little exercise and say, let's consider what it would be like if Peter's experiences were the lens through which he viewed prayer. Because what he's saying is the end of all things is at hand. That's what's important. But what if it, what if it was just, a, a lot of us, you know, my experience would tell you otherwise. We hear that a lot. There's blogs about everything. There's nonstop news about everything. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody wants to share it. My experience would say this. My experience would say otherwise. But there are timeless truths that are bigger than your experience. And Peter got that. Think about if Peter's view of prayer was, was influenced completely by his experience. Peter was the one who stepped out to try to walk on water and, and found out it was a misstep. He started sinking, totally freaked out. Jesus saved him. It was okay. Don't worry. He made it through it, but it was a misstep. Peter's the one who, on, at the transfiguration, he, he didn't know what to do with his hands. You know, it's this holy moment, and God's there, and Moses is there, and Elijah's there, and Peter's like, I'll build a tent for, I'll build three tents. I'm going to build one for you, and I'll build one for you, and I'll build one for you, and the heavens open up, and God says, Peter, zip it. Be quiet. Obey my son. Put, just chill out. But he's, he's, he's one to open his mouth, and there's a misstep. He's also the one who Jesus says, hey, guys, I'm going to go and pray in the garden. This is before the, the guards come and take him. He says, I'm going to go pray. I need you all to keep watch. And in the next moment, Peter wakes up, wiping the sleep out of his eyes, because the one thing, you had one job. Don't go to sleep. And he fell asleep. In the moment that Jesus said, keep guard while I go pray. And he wakes up to Jesus, looking at him. You couldn't stay awake for one hour? You had to go to sleep? Another misstep. And then the guards come to take Jesus. And overzealous Peter draws his sword and lops off the ear of a guard. I think that's more difficult than just killing the guy, right? He had a sword. He's going after him. And then there's this awkward moment where Peter is, I'll save you, even though I slept. I'll sa-, and he lops off the ear. And it's this weird moment where Jesus is like, Peter, put your sword away. And I'm sure the guard's like, really, my ear? You know, his ear's sitting on the ground. And it's a misstep. Peter, oh, okay. And he puts his sword away. And then Peter's the one who, I will not deny you, Lord. I will, n- I will never deny you. I got this. And before the rooster crowed, he denied the Lord three times. If Peter's view of prayer was only affected by his experience, I don't know if anyone in the history of planet Earth would have a lower view of prayer. You can imagine if it was just his experience that informed prayer, he would be like, you know what? No matter what I do, apparently God's going to get his work done. No matter what I do, Jesus is going to succeed. No matter how hard I try, I was going to build three tents, but apparently that was, no matter how hard I try, God accomplishes what he's going to accomplish. If anyone had a futile, non-expectant view of prayer, it would be Peter. It would be Peter saying, no matter what I do, why would I spend a lot of time thinking about prayer, praying, and moving after prayer when I just know that God's going to do what God's going to do? We get lazy in that too, don't we? We use God's sovereignty as an excuse for our own laziness and inactivity. God's going to save who God's going to save, so why would I be evangelistic? I trust him. Or God's going to do what God's going to do. Why would I pray? I just, I just trust him. And God never meant for you to use his sovereignty as an excuse for your inactivity and disobedience. Peter got that. He didn't view prayer through the lens of his experience only. Peter realized this. Peter realized that with the coming of Christ to earth, with Jesus' dying on the cross and his resurrection and ascension back into heaven, that he, Peter, lived in a new era. Specifically, an era where the end of all things is at hand. 
And as he's writing, he's telling them, guys, this affects the way you are supposed to pray. The end is near, guys. This is not playtime. This is serious. And you need to take serious sober-mindedness and self-control for the sake of your prayers because we live in a new era. The end of all things is at hand. The already and the not yet. Jesus has come already, but he has not yet come to take us home. He experienced this pivot point of history where the long-awaited Messiah has arrived. For years, they have awaited his arrival. The prophet, the forefathers of Israel eagerly anticipated it. The prophets prophesied it, and now he and the apostles were witnessing it. It was the beginning of the end. It was a real game changer for them, and frankly, it remains a real game changer for us. We live in the same era, and Jesus wants you to understand the time in which you live, and Peter, like all good, just the same as James, which we'll see in a few minutes, they get all their stuff from Jesus, They get all their good content from Jesus. So turn over to Matthew 24, and I want to take a look at what Jesus says about this era in which we live. Why did Peter draw the conclusion that he drew? And it's because of the way Jesus moved and spoke and how he fulfilled every prophecy that was ever made. Jesus in Matthew 24. In your Bible, it may be titled... Signs of the close of the age. Matthew 24, verse, we're going to start in verse 3. I want you to be convinced that you live in the same era that Peter lived in, so that we have the same urgency in prayer that Peter had. That's the goal of going to this passage. Matthew 24, 3 says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They are aware in that moment, this is not all that we have to look forward to. This age will come to a close, and there are eternal realities that have been spoken of and prophesied from the beginning that they want to know. Hey, King Jesus, when does that start? When is the new kingdom established? And Jesus answers them in verse 4. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And listen to what he says. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. And you will hear of wars, and even rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up, my children, my followers, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then... The end will come. Is that real enough for you? Wars, famines, earthquakes. We have earthquakes from Nepal to Irving. It's not far from home. These aren't just these these things we can't wrap our head around. Wars, famines, earthquakes, and persecution of Christians. Such cataclysmic events will be a regular part of this age until the return of Jesus to redeem all of creation. What this means is that Fox News, CNN, The Blaze, Drudge Report, channels 4, 5, 8, 11 spend the majority of the day reporting on the return of Jesus and they don't even know it. You need to give the account that Joshua and Caleb gave to that news, not the other guys. Every time you watch the news, you need to say, but God, he's doing something, he's aware, he's moving. These things are terrible. The the death of our, our brothers and sisters those who are one with us in Christ, who are going through brutal, 
brutal things in other parts of the globe, we don't rejoice over that. But we see it as a reality that tells us the end is, is nearer than it was a moment ago. We're moving closer to what Jesus said. And it should absolutely affect the way that you pray. These things are going to be normal life until Jesus comes back to take us home. So what does this have to do with my prayer life? Well, if you lose sight of the time that you live in, namely a time where the end of all things is at hand, you will see no purpose in prayer. The truth of the end of all things will be crowded out by your experience. And Peter says, don't let it happen. Don't be so intoxicated with the non-truths of what you're experiencing. Right, It looks bad. The church, you know, the news report this week, the church is is in decline. The nuns or whatever, the nuns, whatever it said, it's in decline and, oh man, things are getting bad. No, the, the kingdom of God is moving forward and it is growing as God sees fit and he is not surprised by things that are going on. The kingdom is moving forward. And so the truth of all things will be crowded out by our experiences if we don't take this into account, the time in which we live. Jesus is undoubtedly coming back. We get so distracted with so many things that the reality is everyone in this room could go days without giving one thought to the fact that Jesus is coming back. We can be distracted by work, bills, extracurricular activities, DI, you name it. And we don't give any thought to, guys, Jesus is coming back. So we pray to that end. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The end of things here means the beginning of eternity with our God. So I want to ask a question as a means to stir your thoughts. What are you guilty of anticipating more than the return of Christ? Because that's supposed to be the main thing. We live in an era where Jesus is coming back. He's given you things to be about because he's coming back. What do you anticipate more than the return of Jesus Christ to take us home? Is it being debt-free? Is it good health? Is it a promotion? Usually, desires can be good things, but when we turn them into these demands, it's real easy for a good thing like, you know, I would like to be debt-free. Well, fantastic, that's good. That can't be more important than the fact that you live in a time where Jesus is, is going to come back. A desire becomes an idol when it becomes more important than, than the realities and the truths of Jesus, when it captures our affections, our thoughts, our hearts more than Christ. So is it, is it being debt-free? Is it good health? What are you anticipating more than the return of Christ? A promotion? Retirement? Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's having children. Maybe it's just a life or the thought of a life that doesn't hurt so much. We are awaiting salvation. We are awaiting the return of our Lord And the time that we live in is actually similar to that of Habakkuk. Turn over to Habakkuk. In my Bible, it's it's page 876. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 785. And it's right after Nahum, if you're for some reason far more familiar with Nahum than Habakkuk. It's a short book. But Jesus wants you to understand the way things are going to be until he comes back. There's going to be more war. There's going to be more earthquakes. There's going to be more division. The love of many is going to grow cold. You will see many walking away from the faith. Maybe that news story this week was a fulfillment of the fact that the love of many is going to grow cold. You're going to start judging each other by different moral standards, and and people are going to be hateful towards each other and divisive. Maybe that's a partial fulfillment of that. But he says, I, want you, I don't want you to be foolish as to the realities of what things are going to be like until I come back and it has everything to do with your prayer. Habakkuk, chapter 1. I want us to see Habakkuk, the time he lives in, is very similar to ours. And look at what happens in chapter 1. Habakkuk has a lot of stuff going on around him that is very, very troubling to him. And listen to his prayer. It's hard to listen to because it's so brutally honest, but if we're honest, we've probably said similar things to God. He says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Every time I read that out loud, I kind of shudder and worry about lightning striking, because it's just 
God, why are you sitting around and not doing anything about all this craziness that I'm seeing on the earth? He's being very honest. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. For the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice, it goes forth perverted. This greatly illustrates for us our sometimes narrow view that needs to be greatly widened. We see only the hard issues at hand because we forget about the time in which we live. We just see those and we don't take into account the reality of what Jesus told us. And we cry out to God, much like Habakkuk. Habakkuk's plea is the same as ours. When, O Lord, will you come and redeem our people? What do you say at the end of a hard day? What do you say when you get bad news about someone dying or someone getting sick or someone wronging someone else, someone being a victim of a crime? You say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We we want Jesus to come back. That's, That's what he's crying out. It should be familiar. So first, Habakkuk prays, but look at God's answer in verse 5. This should blow your mind. Look at God's answer in verse 5. Habakkuk, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Boy, God comes in with a big, fat dose of reality. God doesn't say, ignore reality, buddy. He comes in, and he comes in with a big, fat dose of reality. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And this pattern, God's saying, look up. Know that I'm doing more than you see. You see a lot of bad things, and you're troubled by them? Please know I am your God and I am not asleep. I am doing more than you'll ever know. If I explained it to you, you wouldn't understand it because it is so big and eternal. And that continues throughout the book. Habakkuk prays, offers up a concern, offers up a complaint even, and his merciful God provides answers and gives insight the same way he does when we pray the right way. And look at what happens at the end of Habakkuk. Turn to the next page. It's a short book. I want you to see what happens as he prays and God reminds him of reality and says what you're experiencing is not the main thing. As he prays, I want you to see what happens. Look at chapter 3, verse, look at the second part of 16. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And he says this, Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. What a change through prayer that happens in Habakkuk. Essentially, that would be like us saying, though we have no food in the cupboard, though our refrigerators are empty, though the grocery stores are empty, though our enemies invade us, though we have no means, if there was nothing going right at all, I will praise my God who is good and worthy of praise. What happened to Habakkuk through prayer? Well, through prayer, Habakkuk's demeanor and approach was changed from concern and misunderstanding and anxiety to one who is able to rejoice and take refuge in God and joy in God, no matter the circumstance. What we need to see here through prayer, Habakkuk changed. His circumstances did not At the end, he's not saying, God, I prayed, and now the stalls are full, the herds are awesome, everything is great, thank you, thank you, thank you, now I'll worship you. That is not what he says. What we see here, Habakkuk changed, his circumstances did not. Through prayer, he learned to view his circumstances and experiences through the lens of truth. Which brings us to our last point at the end of the verse. Turn back to 1 Peter. It's our last point of the morning. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What we need to see in this last point is that prayer accomplishes things that prayerlessness does not. Prayer accomplishes things that prayerlessness does not accomplish. This is what Peter is referring to with the phrase, for the sake of your prayers. Turn over to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Prayer accomplishes things that prayerlessness does not. Turn to Matthew 7, and as you turn there, I want you to listen to what James says. I mentioned him earlier as preparation, but James says in James 4, you have not because you ask not. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. What we need to understand is that James wasn't sharing something new. He gets his content from Jesus. So what does Jesus say in Matthew, 20, or Matthew 4, Matthew 7, sorry. Matthew 7, I'm sure of it. Turn to Matthew 7 and look at verse 7. Matthew 7, 7. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. That's where James gets what he said. You don't have because you didn't ask. You have not because you asked not. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Maybe it hasn't been given to you because you haven't asked. Maybe you don't trust God enough. Maybe your circumstances have made you into a person who looks with uh, a little bit of, I'm not sure if God's going to look out for my best interest. But Jesus is saying here, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks it will be opened. And listen to this. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, ouch, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask. So here's the first thing that I want to share, and I know that this is a statement that some of us are going to have to work on to reckon with it. First, I want you to see this. In prayer, we see God never gives us what's bad for us. God never gives us what is bad for us. It's difficult to make that statement because I know what some of you have gone through in this room. I know some of the heartache and pain that, that, that many sitting here have been through. And you might immediately, when I say God wants you to know in prayer, he will never give you what is bad for you. You might be saying, you know, I went through something and I'm not sure I could say it was good for me. I went through something that was hard. I, I've been on the receiving end of some bad things. I don't know if I can say that this, this health issue is, is not bad for me. How, how do I work through that? I don't know if I can say my issue with my children is not, is not bad for me. I don't know that I could say that my marriage that's rough right now is not bad for me. How, what, do you, how, what do you mean by that? And what God means is he wants you to pray and picture him as a father who gives good gifts. That's what he wants you to picture when you pray. You can, through your imagination, you can kind of enter into the things that are unseen. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, I want you to know I will never give you what is bad for you. All things work together for kingdom good, and if you're a member of God's kingdom, that means that all things work together for your good. There are trials that you might be going through that you're thinking, man, this is just bad for me. I don't, I don't know. And God will be saying, will be doing something with it. Like Habakkuk, he will say to you, lift up your eyes, wander and be astounded. I'm doing things you don't know. So we're going to have to think through this more, think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. But what he says here is your heavenly Father will never give you what is bad for you. In prayer, God will either give you exactly what you have asked for, or he will give you something better. And it's hard to understand in the moment. That's why your experience can't be the thing that tempers your prayers. It's just the reality of what God is doing and the time you live in. The second thing that we see in this verse, prayer does something. I cannot stand it when we act as if it doesn't do anything or it's just an exercise that we go through. Prayer has an effect. 
Specifically, there are things that we do not have right now. We're sitting here. We have, there are things we do not have because we have not asked or we have asked to spend it on our own passions. And specifically, there are things that we will have in the future only if we pray. Please hear that. There are things that you will have in the future only if you pray. There are things that God aims to accomplish through the prayers of his children. What encouragement for a group of needy, dependent people who are guaranteed by Jesus to face trials until he comes to take us home. Prayer should not be approached haphazardly, but with right thinking that leads to right actions that leads to right praying. Right praying never allows our experiences to supersede the timeless truth that we live in an area where the next major event is the return of Jesus to take us home. And right praying accomplishes things that would otherwise not be accomplished. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for um, the way it challenges us. I thank you for speaking to us in the way that you spoke to Habakkuk, where many of us sitting here need to lift up our eyes and look at the nations and wonder and be astounded, knowing that our God is at work. I pray, Lord, that in light of the time we live, that this people would be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers, that it would affect the way we pray right now in this corporate gathering, that it would affect the way we pray when we get together for life group meetings and meetings with our neighbors or meetings with our families throughout the week. I pray that it would affect the way we approach you in solitude. Lord, We are humbled by the work that you are doing and we want to be a part of it. And we know that you call us to be a part of it through prayer, through being sober-minded, through being self-controlled, through aiming to take our thoughts captive, through aiming towards obedience. Lord, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. I pray that the realities of the access we have to you would allow us to take this supper humbly and with thankful hearts this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.